Who are the real people we consider our sages? Who were they in life? What is the legacy they left us? Join Rabbi Danny Saxton for the next hour as he explores the lives of our Torah giants, the spiritual geniuses who shaped the way we approach Judaism today. That's Focus on Our Sages right now on 101.9 High FM. Good afternoon and welcome to Soul to Soul. Always wonderful to be with you on Wednesday afternoons. And uh, today we're going to look at some fascinating ideas and information. Um, I want to start out with uh, talking a little bit about Rav Elchanan Wasserman. Today, the Hebrew day today, is the 14th of Tammuz um, and uh, the 13th of July, 14th of Tammuz in the Hebrew dates. Yesterday was the 13th of Tammuz. And yesterday was the yacht site of Rav Alchonon Wasserman. Rav Alchonon Wasserman was one of the great leaders of the Jewish world at the times of the Holocaust. Um, he was a Talmud, a student of the Chofetz Chaim. Uh, the Chofetz Chaim, Rav Yisrael Meir Kagan HaKohen, was the Gadol Hador, was the great holy sage that led the Jewish people um, up until his death in 1933. And his Talmud Mufak, his primary student, was Rav Elchanan, was Elchanan Wasserman, um, who studied by him and who, um, even though Rav Elchanan became a great Rosh Hashiva, he would uh, visit the home of the Chovetz Chaim every Elul to be with his Rebbe for Yomim Naraim. And uh, he was very, very close to the Chovetz Chaim. Rav Elchanan became the Rosh Hashiva of a yeshiva in a town called Baranovich. Baranovich um, was actually established as a town in 1870. Originally it was part of Russia, but after World War I, it became part of Poland. And it actually had a very significant strategic importance because um, both the Warsaw-Moscow train line, uh, which stopped in Bialystok and Minsk, and then to, and also the Krakow Moscow line, which also went through Lublin and Brisk, um, they both ran through Bronovich. So Bronovich became a large city of tens of thousands quite quickly, and um, most of its population was Jewish. So um, by the time World War II broke out, the records say that there were about 35,000 people in Bronovich, 20,000 of them were Jews. Um, until most of them were murdered. Um, sorry, there were, I think there were about 35,000 Jews in Bronovich. 20,000 of them were murdered by the Nazis um, when they liquidated the ghetto in Bronovich in 1942. And uh, so it was a very strong major Jewish center in Eastern Europe. Today, Bronovich is actually uh, part of Belarus. And... Um, the yeshiva, which was called Oil Torah, was founded in 1906. Uh, a rabbi by the name of, uh, name of Rabbi Yosef Amharovitz, the Alta of Novadok, established the yeshiva. And Rabbi Khanan Wasserman became the Rosh Yeshiva in 1921. Rabbi Khanan was born in 1874. So he was, um, so in 1921, he was 60-something years old. No, am I wrong? Uh, 1921 to 87, sorry, that's incorrect. So he was born in 1874, um, 
So he was um, 47 years old when he took over as Rosh Hashiva of Oil Torah and Branovich. And uh, there was a strong focus of, of learning Gemara Rashi Toysus in the Yeshiva. And Rabbi Hanan's goal was to prepare the students um, and give them the groundwork in order to go move on to the great yeshivas in Lithuania, like Amir, Slobodka, Kamenets, Tels, Grodno, Loms, etc. So, and very quickly, its reputation spread as one of the great um, foundation yeshivas in Lithuania. And the students from Baranovich were sought after and were very much um, a uh, prize entity in the yeshivas throughout Lithuania. The Meshkiach of the yeshiva was a famous individual by the name of Rav Yisrael Yaakov Lubshansky. He was actually the son of Rav Chaim Lev Lubshansky, who was the rabbi in Bronovich. And uh, together with Rav Alchonon, Rav Yisrael Yaakov built a formidable yeshiva in which they produced very high quality Talmudim. The yeshiva suffered terribly with the Great Depression in the 1930s and uh, they were under tremendous financial stress. Rav Ochanon made a number of fundraising trips to Vilna and later to um, England and to the United States. And he um, was always, whenever he came to a place, so he, his renown was spread far and wide and people flocked to listen to him. And he had a very beautiful balance in his personality, Rav Ochanon. He was known as being a very kind, very gentle person, but also being very strong in his protection of Torah and mitzvahs and his inspiring of Klai Yisrael not to weaken in their Torah observance. And uh, he, when he came to America, he was very outspoken about the Chidul Shabbos and about Klai Yisrael, the Jewish people, um, keeping Shabbos and not moving away from Shabbos. Um, he... In 1935, he gave a, a number of talks in, in America when he was there, um, and he uh, he was a very, very strong, powerful, and endeared individual within Klai Yisrael. Uh, in 1926, actually, it was interesting, five years after he became Rosh Hashiva, so his father-in-law, Rabbi Meir Atlas, passed away and uh, in a place called Shavla, and they offered the job of the rabbi of the town to Rav Alchonon, to his son-in-law. And his wife very much wanted to take up the position because she felt it would be honoring her father and also felt the tremendous financial stress on her husband to raise the money for the yeshiva um, was having a negative effect on him and on the family. And so she thought this would be an easier solution um, and a, a better way forward for them. And Rav Ochanan resisted. He didn't want to, but she felt very strongly about it. So Rav Ochanan said, okay, let's go ask the Chovetz Chaim. And whatever the Chovetz Chaim says, we'll do. And uh, they w went to the train station to um, catch a train from Baranovich to Radin to go see the Chovetz Chaim. And um, at the train station, Rav Ochanan started crying and crying. And his wife saw how painful it would be for him to leave the yeshiva, how devastating it would be. And she said, okay, I see um, how much it means to you. And so she said, we'll stay. We, we won't go. And so they stayed in Bronovich and continued to build the yeshiva. And uh, Rav Ochanan, as I mentioned, was uh, renowned for his kindness and his gentle nature, as well as his strength and ability to stand up for Torah and mitzvahs. 
And there's a very famous story about the Sternbach family. Uh, many of us in South Africa know Rabbi Moshe Sternbach, who's a tremendous Talmud Chochem. He's one of my rabbis. He's a person who knows Kol HaTorah Kulo, just unbelievable. His knowledge and his um, depth and breadth of, of Torah knowledge. Um, so Rav Sternbach, when his father, Rav Sternbach's father, Rabbi um, Rabbi Osher Sternbach, was a very well-known um, person in, in, in London, who was also a philanthropist who supported many worthy Torah causes. And when Rav Alchonan stayed in England, he would stay in their home. And uh, Rav Sternbach not only helped um, Rav Alchonan to raise money for the yeshiva, but he also gave generously to the yeshiva. And Rav Osher Sternbach uh, tragically passed away at a young age. And even after he passed away, Rav Alchonan kept in touch with the family and he encouraged the family and he helped the, the children. Um, their mother was now a widow and she struggled um, you know, with a young family and he was instrumental in encouraging them and in, in, in assisting them. And in fact, there's a letter that one of the daughters wrote to him because uh, he would encourage the children to remain um, very dedicated to Torah mitzvahs. And he said to them, even though your father has passed away, you still have the mitzvah of Kibbut Av um, and uh, you honor his neshama for eternity by being careful with your observance of the mitzvahs and by learning Torah. And the, the one of the daughters, Leah, said to Rav Alchonon that her brother Moshe was uh, very committed to his Torah learning and couldn't wait to join his brother David in Yeshiva. And uh, Rav Moshe, as we know, turned out to be the great Rav Moshe Sternbuch, who's written many, many Swarim. And uh, he's the um, av Bastin of the Edel Haredis in Yerushalayim, a very great Jew who has impacted on the lives of thousands of people, including myself. So there was the, uh, Rav Alchonan had a big impact on his life as well. Um, unfortunately, Rav Alchonan was um, murdered by the Nazis. He was actually in America when World War II broke out. And they said to him, don't go back. You know, we see that Europe is going up in flames and Hitler is going to destroy the Jews. And Rav Alchonan said that he couldn't leave his uh, family and his Talmudim. And they said, we can get your family out here. And in fact, they managed to get his wife and one of his sons, Rav Simcha. They were able to get them to out of Europe. Uh, it just, just, just in time. Rav Alchonan went back and he, um, he was, uh, when the Nazis, you know, after Operation Barbarossa in 1941, in July 1941, so they um, quickly, as we know, took over uh, Poland and, uh, well, well, they already had half of Poland in their treaty with the Russians, but now they, they went further east and took over the rest of Poland and Lithuania and uh, the big yeshivas and many, many millions more Jews were now in the clutches of the Nazis. So uh, we'll continue in a moment to discuss what happened to Rav Alchonah. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. We're talking about the great and the holy Rav Elchonon Vassaman. Um, Rav Elchonon was the Rosh Yeshiva of the Baranovich Yeshiva in 
um, Lithuania, or at the time, today it's, it's in Belarus, um, and Rav Ochonen was the great Talmud of the Chofetz Chaim. Um, there was actually a stage when the Chofetz Chaim wanted to go to Eretz Yisrael, um, and, to the, or, and there was a stage that we want to go to America. They wanted actually the Chofetz Chaim in America because they said that you know he needed to be there to save American Jewry. Um, the early years in the United States was very difficult to be an observant Jew, and many of the um, hundreds of thousands and millions of of uh, of immigrants that left Eastern Europe and came to the shores of the United States, um, the famous statistic between 1880 and the outbreak of World War One, more than two million Jews left Eastern Europe and went to the United States, and many uh, came here to South Africa from Lithuania, and most of them that came when they were in the old country, so. Um, in the Haim, already many were no longer observant, and uh, the ravages of the Haskalah at the end of the 19th century had a great impact on the Jewish community in Eastern and Western Europe. And already there were large numbers that were no longer observant. They, they, you know, they were still mildly traditional, although there were some um, activists that were anti-religious, and there were um, people that had supported the communists and the socialists, and there were secular Zionists, all of them had moved away from observance of religion, but there was still was, you know, a, a, a significant part of the community that was observant and still connected. But many of those uh, individuals that left, as we know, the ones, usually the ones that leave, certainly then it was the case, maybe today it's a bit different, but to then the case was that people who were not established, people who didn't have that much to lo lose were the ones that left. So the Rabbonim and the Rosh Hashivas and the Talmidim in the Yeshivas and the people that were uh, successful business owners and successful academics or professionals, they were more reluctant to leave because they were leaving behind that which they had established, that which they had built up, um, that which was significant. Um, it's easier for somebody who's just starting out or somebody who's not established to, to leave. And that was the case with many of the, those that left the shores of Eastern Europe and came to the United States and, and other places, including South Africa. And many of them didn't, uh, uh, e even if they were observant, they didn't take their Yiddishkeit with them. And when they landed, obviously, it was very, very difficult to arrive in a new country. They didn't know the language. They had to try and integrate. And it was the first thing to go was their Torah and Mitzvahs, their Shabbos observance, their Kashrus. Even if they had it before, uh, most of them lost it when they arrived. And so they wanted the Chovetz Chaim to go to the United States and to try and strengthen and encourage and build up the, the Jewish community and maintain the observance of the Jewish community. Um, so it's a long story. Eventually, he never decided, he decided not to go to the United States. But there was a time that he was going to go. There was a time he was going to go to Israel. He never got there either. And uh, the Talmudim said to him, Rebbe, how could you go? How could you leave us? You're the God of our you, How could you leave the Jews in Europe? He said, no, don't worry, you've got Rebbe Al-Khanan. He, he saw Rebbe Al-Khanan as his replacement. And that's what he told his Talmud. And that was the greatness of, of Rebbe Al-Khanan. And Rebbe Al-Khanan, um, after the passing of the Chovetz Chaim, assumed the mantle as the Gadol Ador and as the leader of Klai Yisrael, him and Rav Chaim Oza Grzynski, who was in Vilna, um, together with some other of the great Rosh Hashivas, were the leaders of Klai Yisrael um, at the time. And so when the Nazis came into 
um, the rest of Eastern Europe with, in 1941 when they went east and attacked Russia. Um, so as we know, the Nazis wanted to very quickly destroy the Jews as, as fast as they could. And the original strategy was the Ansatzgruppen, which were these Nazi death squads, which were quite close behind the front lines of the infantry soldiers. And they would then gather up the Jews. They would take them into the forests near their towns. They would um, force them to dig uh, big graves and they would machine gun them. They would shoot them and murder them that way. Um, and also the, the first thing that they did was to arrest the leaders of the Jewish community because they um, realized that without their leaders, the Jews would, would have, uh, it would be difficult for them to resist and to um, get a, a, an understanding of what was going on. Um, and so Rav Ochuna was so famous, uh, and as soon as the Nazis came, the Lithuanian collaborators, who were many, the, the many, many of the Lithuanians embraced the Nazis and and assisted the Nazis in rounding up the Jews, in murdering the Jews. And so quickly they told the Nazis that there's a very famous rabbi that we that you need to arrest by the name of Rav Ochuna Basman. And so already by that time, the yeshiva had moved from town to town in order to, you know, out of the centers. And the Talmud now had split up. And uh, Rav Ochonen went to Kovno. Kovno was one of the big cities of, of Lithuania. And he, he ended up hiding in the home of Avram Grzynski, who was the um, one of the great Rabonim over there, a very famous person, a very well-known person. And um, he... Uh, Rav Ochonen hid in Rav Grzynski's uh, house. I've actually been there. It's in Slobodka. I've actually been to the house from where um, they, they uh, what happened was, how did they find Rav Ochonen? They were looking for him, and they saw these a, a lot of students coming in and out of this house. So one of uh, the Lithuanian locals went to the police and said, this place is suspicious because this, the, the Jews are, lots of Jews coming in and out. And so they sent a Nazi together with a Lithuanian to the house, and they opened the door, and they saw Rav Ochonen there. And uh, Rav Ochonen, he looked like a malach. He was a very saintly-looking individual. And the uh, Nazi actually said to the Lithuanian, let's just leave it. Let's go. And the Lithuanian said, no, this is the one we're looking for. Let's let's take him in. And they arrested Rav Ochonen, and they took him to a place called the Seventh Fort, which was a certain old fort that was used by the Lithuanians in, in their previous wars. And they, the Nazis had turned it into a massive prison, which they held, you know, the original people that they arrested soon after their invasion and occupation. Rabbi Khanna was there for a night or two. I think it was one night he slept in, in the prison there. And then they took them nearby the seventh fort and they made them dig a big grave and they machine gunned them all. They, they shot them all the machine guns. And that's how Rav Ochonen was murdered by the Nazis. And he told those that were with him, he said he had just come back from America. He says, we are a korban for the uh, Jews of America who are assimilating and we should have pure thoughts like a korban, like, like a kohen who brings a korban and we should, our death should be a kapara for Klai Yisrael. And uh, they took them to to their death. And actually we walked exactly the route that Rav Ochonen walked, like through a little tunnel and outside the seventh fort into a place where there were these big pits where they shot them into. 
And uh, when I went to Poland and Lithuania, I went with Rabbi Kron to Poland, Lithuania, and a group of South Africans, which was very moving and very powerful, together with my wife and my parents. It was a very uh, uh, life-changing experience in 2019. And I was quite strong in, in the concentration camps, and I was quite strong in many of the places where we went and we, you know, uh, saw how European Jewry had been completely obliterated and murdered by the Nazis. But when we got to Seventh Fort, I've always had a strong connection with Rav Khanan. I love his Torah, and uh, uh, his son Rav Simcha taught me in Yeshiva, in Osomach. So I felt a, a strong connection to him. And that, that's when I broke down. At that moment when we walked the same way he walked and where he was murdered, that's where I, I pretty much lost it at that moment. It was very, very emotional for me. Um, so that was the life of Rav Khanan. So I'll just end off with one more thing about Rav Khanan. When the Chobetz Chaim died in 1933, so he said a eulogy, a hesped for his Rebbe. And um, he said that his Rebbe, um, he, he said that um, the Torah talks about Moshe Rabbeinu, after Moshe Rabbeinu, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu was an Eved Hashem. That was the compliment that the Torah gives to Moshe. And the Rabbi Chonan said the Chobetz Chaim also was an Eved Hashem. And so he said, why is that such a great compliment to be called an Eved Hashem? So he described it with a mashal. He said that um, once there was a man, a very wealthy man, who was traveling with a lot of his wealth with him, and he fell ill and he died. And he had together with him one of his servants, one of his, his PA, his assistant. And he knew that um, his assistant would take everything that he had, which was much of, most of his riches. But he wanted... He, to have a dignified burial, and he wanted his wealth to go to his family, to his son. So he said to this Eved, he said to him, I'm, I'm going to write for you. He knew he was dying. I'll write for you a will, that you will receive everything, but my son's allowed to choose one thing, and that should belong to my son. So the Eved thought, oh my gosh, this is, you know, amazing. I'm going to inherit everything. And so he, the, the man dies, and he goes back, and, and, the, and the servant takes him back to his town, and he gets a dignified burial. And uh, after the shiva, he takes this document to the son, and he says, look, I'm going to inherit everything. But your father said, you can choose one thing. So the son obviously was completely devastated. Like, my father's giving everything to the Eved. He's not giving anything to me, to the, to the PA. And the son went to his rabbi and he said, what should I do? The rabbi said, your father was a very brilliant man. Your father knew that if, if he told his PA, his assistant, that everything would go to you, so then he would take, he would steal everything and you would never see him again because he had most of his riches with him. So he told him that, he, he, uh, you, can that you can choose one thing. And he said, the thing that you should choose is the, the effort. Is the servant, because according to Halacha, Masha Kana Eved Kana Rabo, that which the servant acquires, his master acquires. So if you acquire, if you make this man your Eved, so then everything that he has belongs to you. He says that was the genius of your father, and then that was Moshe Rabbeinu. That Moshe Rabbeinu was an Eved Hashem. He was a servant of Hashem. That everything that he had, that everything that he um, Hashem blessed him with in this world all the potential and talent that he had was all Hashem's, was all 100% dedicated to Hashem and to the service of Hashem and to the service of Hashem's people. I said, Rav that was the Chavetz Chaim too, that all of his genius in learning and all of his 
uh, attributes, his kindness, his his holiness was all dedicated to Hashem and dedicated to the Jewish people. He was a true Evid Hashem. And so certainly there's no question that Rav Ochanan himself too was a true Evid Hashem. And uh, we remember him yesterday, his Yotzeit, murdered by the Nazis in, in 1941. And um, may his memory be a blessing and may we all be inspired by the sterling example that he was to Klai Yisrael. Okay, so let's now talk a little bit about uh, Parshas Balak. I want to share with you some very interesting ideas and, and powerful thoughts that I think we should be referring to. But uh, we're going to have an ad break, and when we come back from our ad break, we will continue with Parshas Balak. This is Focus on Our Sages with Rabbi Danny Saxton on 101.9 High FM. Welcome back, and always great to be with you. We're going to discuss something fascinating that we learn from the Pasha we read this week, Pasha's Balak. Pasha's Balak tells us of the interesting story of Bilam. Bilam was a um, was quite a, a fascinating individual. Bilam was a great prophet, and in fact, it says that Hashem gave Bilam to the nations of the world because if he didn't. They would make the Taina and say, if we had a prophet, the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, so we would have also been like the Jewish people and followed your commandments. So Hashem gave them Balak and Abilam, and who, were, who had the potential to be a prophet like Moshe Rabbeinu. That was his greatness. That was his capacity and his potential. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to overcome his lower self. And even though he had all these abilities and the um, potential to connect with the higher world, to the eternal world. He had an insight into that eternal world. He uh, used it for his own benefit, for his own agenda, and wasn't able to become an altruistic, holy leader of of the world. And he uh, remained this lowly, licentious individual who um, squandered all the potential that he had. And he was hired because Balak, who was one of the uh, great powers of the time. He was concerned about Klai Yisrael. He was worried this nation, the Jewish people, have now left Egypt. They've uh, experienced a, a miraculous existence. They've defeated the great superpower Egypt. They've been able to defeat anybody who rose up against them. And so clearly they have the spiritual power that's with them. So I want to destroy them and undermine that spiritual power that they have. So he turns to Bilam. And he says to Bilam, I'll hire you to curse them. Because he knew a curse would remove that spiritual divine protection that the Jewish people enjoyed. And without God's protection, so the Jewish people would be would be very vulnerable. And that's our greatest fear, actually, as a nation, is that we lose our spiritual merits. When we lose our spiritual merits, so then God's protection, when we step away from God, God treats us mida keneged mida measure for measure, and God then steps away from us. When God steps away from us, away from us, that's when we're in trouble. So we push God away, and God says, okay, you push me away, I'll, I'll accept that, I'll be pushed away. And when that happens, so then we are vulnerable and exposed. And when we are vulnerable and exposed without Hashem's protection, so then we see terrible things happen to the Jewish people. And our turbulent history 
is not short of calamitous events that have been very, very painful for Klal Yisrael, for the Jewish people. And, you know, we can go through them from the Crusades to the Inquisition to the Holocaust to many, many terrible calamities that have beset the Jewish people. So when we move away from Hashem, we no longer enjoy divine protection, and then the nations of the world are free to do to us that which they wish. When we are connected to Hashem, when we are loyal to Hashem, when we are upholding our side of the contract, of the deal, that of the covenant that we entered into at Mount Sinai, so then Hashem will look after us. Then we're going to be safe, and then we're going to be fine. We're much more frightened of um, the Jewish people assimilating and rejecting Hashem and the Torah than we are of our enemies because our enemies are kept at bay when we have spiritual merits. When we don't have spiritual merit, merits, that's when our enemies have the power to to um, do harm to us. And so Balak knew that. And he goes to Bilam and he says to Bilam, curse these people in order that they'll lose their spiritual merit and then I'll be able to destroy them. Then they will be vulnerable and they will be... Um, They'll be fresh for the picking. We'll be able to destroy them. And so uh, Bilam says to Balak, well, I can only do that which, I can only say that which God puts in my mouth. I could only um, express the words that come come to me during when I'm trying to prophesize, when I'm prophesizing. And he tries four different times to bring sacrifices. And he, he knew the time, Bilam where Hashem's Midas Hadin is at its height. Hashem has different Midas, we call them, characteristics, Kiviyachu. And Hashem, um, there are different times and different moments when those characteristics are dominant. So Bilam knew the Cheshbon, the calculation, when God's Midas Hadin, God's attribute of, just, of judgment is at the strongest, and then he would try and curse the Jewish people and try and pick out their weaknesses. And then that would create a chain reaction which would push Hashem away from protecting them. That was his strategy. That was his plan. And so there are four different times that he attempts to do this. And each time, instead of curses coming out against the Jewish people, so blessings were the prophecies of Bilam. Very powerful, beautiful blessings. So let's just look at the first one. The first one he says, Ki tsurim It's in Perikafkim or Pasuk Tes of this week's Pasha, Pasuk Balak. So he says, Ki tsurim, From the head of rocks, Erenu, they are seen, Umigvaos Ashurenu, and from the valleys comes forth their wealth. Hen am levadad yishkon, uvagoim yo lo yitchashop. They are a nation who dwells alone, and amongst the Nations, they are not considered. So, what does all that mean? So, Rashi says, Kime Rosh Tsurim Ereno, says Rashi, Ani Mistakel Roshesem, Roshesem. I look at their beginnings, at the earliest, but Tachilas Sharshem, at the start of their roots. Vani Roe Oisam, Yusadim Vachazakim. I see that they are established and powerful, their beginnings, their roots. Katsurim Ugvaois Halulu, like these. Rocks and valleys, through the patriarchs and matriarchs. So Bilam looks into the Jewish people and he sees our foundation is strong 
is solid. You know, when you look at a building, when an engineer goes to assess a building, the first thing he looks at are the foundations. Are the foundations intact and solid? So Bilam is trying to curse the Jewish people, but he says, I can't get past those solid foundations. Their beginnings, their roots are so strong, are so deep, are so powerful. And referring to the Amos, Avos and Imas, referring to our patriarchs and our matriarchs, which is a very beautiful, powerful description of Klai Yisrael. And so firstly, we should all know that we come from very rich beginnings. We are all spiritual royalty because we are descend descendants of Avram, Isaac, Yaakov, Sarifka, Rachavalea, because we are descendants of the spiritual giants who the patriarchs and matriarchs were, which Bilam clearly can see in the spiritual worlds. And then he says, Hein am Levada Bishkon. They are a nation that dwell alone. Um, so what does that mean, they're a nation that dwell alone? So um, both the Targum Unculus and the Targum um, Yerushalmi and the Targum Yonason bin Uziel, they all say that's referring to Belichudehem uh, Atidin de Yachson, that they will in the future be alone. In other words, Klai Israel are a unique nation that will be in the next world a unique nation. That greatness, that uniqueness, that elevated status will remain with Klai Yisrael for eternity. That will be ours always. And that's what the Ramban says. The Ramban says on this Pasuk, Bilam said, when I see this nation, they are dwelling alone. So they will be forever, for eternity, this unique um, nation that stands alone. So they, they will be a nation that dwells alone. There won't be any nation that will subjugate them and dominate them. They will not be weakened. That's how what Bilam saw. So this aloneness, so where does it come from? What does it mean? What's the depth behind us? And, and, and that, will, Bilam says, is our eternity as well. The next world also, we stand separate and alone. So let's try and understand this. I heard this from Rabbi Yosef Elephant, a beautiful description and ex explanation based on Rabbi Yerucham of the Mir, the great Mashkiach of the Mir, Yeshivan Rabbi Yerucham Lubavitz. So he, it, in his commentary on Sefer Devarim, he quotes the Mishnah in Pirkavos. The Mishnah in Pirkavos, the first Mishnah of the fourth parak of Pirkavos says, Ben Zoyma Oimer, Ezul Chacham. Ben Zoyma says, Who is a wise person? Haloimed Mikol Adam. A person who learns from everybody. I'm not going to. He brings psukim, but I, just for uh, practical purposes, I won't quote the psukim in the in the Mishnah. Ezu Gibber, who's the Gibber? Who's that powerful person? Hakovish es Yitroi, somebody who overcomes his inclinations. Ezu um, Ashir, who's a wealthy person? Sameach bechelkoi, somebody who is um, happy with their lot and rejoices over what they have. And finally, the fourth individual that Ben Zoma describes is Ezu Mechubad, who is an honorable person, the one who honors others, Hamachabed Esabrius, one who honors other people. So the Maharal explains this Mishnah, it's a beautiful, powerful Mishnah, and the common thread between all of these things. It's, it's you know, the Mishnah in itself, the basic chapter of the Mishnah is very powerful. Who's a wise person? The one who is open to learn from everybody. 
the one who seeks information and knowledge from all, who is the powerful person, not the Navy SEAL or the great recce who's physically very, very strong and works out every day. And in, in the Torah perspective, a powerful person is the one who can overcome their inclinations, one who can overcome their lower selves and their passions and urges. That's a powerful person that we look up to. Who is the wealthy person? We don't measure wealth based on a person's assets and their net worth. We measure wealth based on a person's appreciation for what they have, joy and appreciation for their situation, their position. And finally, the honorable person is the one who honors others. The one who's able to give honor to others, he's the one who is honored. So it says the Maharal, what's the common denominator between all of these aspects, all of these characteristics and attributes? Maharal says the common denominator is that these qualities have to come from within. They can't be dependent on external factors. They can't come from the outside. They have to come from the inside. Who is the wise person? Not somebody who only listen to 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 an individual that everybody says is worth listening to, or anybody somebody who's like the professor or the or the successful person. You know that I'll listen to, but not anybody else. So that doesn't show. That's dependent on external factors. Doesn't show a true yearning for knowledge. The one who really has knowledge will learn from everybody, irrespective of what they're saying on the outside. The one who was second, who is this powerful person? Power doesn't come from your physical strength. From from you, you know, you, there will always be somebody who's stronger than you physically. So, so if that's power, you're never going to be powerful because there's always somebody stronger than you. But if it comes from within, power from overcoming your own weaknesses from within, that's real power. That's a strong person. And the um, we said the who's the person who is um, who is uh, wealthy? We described well wealthy. It can't depend on your external wealth. External wealth is something that. Um, comes from the outside. You know, there's always somebody who's more rich than you. So if you've got a million, you want two million. If you've got 10 million, you want 20 million. If you've got 100 million, you want 100 million dollars, you know. So th there's no limit. It's all relative. But if you appreciate what you have, if you really appreciate that which Hashem has blessed you with, that's wealth. That comes from within. That's not dependent on external factors. And finally, honoring others too. So the moral says that, that the Mishnah is telling us that the, these attributes have to come, they have to sprout from within a person. They have to, a person has to reach deep and develop these qualities and only then will he have them. If a person doesn't or she will have them, if a person doesn't develop these qualities from within, so then they'll never actually achieve these things. And says Rav Yeruchim, that's what the, what Bilam was referring to. This quality of Am Levadad Yishkon, a nation that dwells alone, means that from within they develop the attributes of of spirituality, that they're connected to God from their own internal abilities and and work that they've done on themselves. And that's what he says, Veniska of Yaakov Levado, Yaakov stood alone. Yaakov Avinu, the great Jacob, stood alone. Um, and it says that's when um, the Sarshal Esav attacked him. So the Pasha Pshat, it seems like he was alone, so he was vulnerable. But Rav Yeruchim says, no, the real Pshat of the Pasuk is that when he reached this level of Levado, Niskav Yaakov Levado, so he was like, Veniskav Hashem Levado, sorry, Vyate Yaakov Levado, Niskav Hashem Levado, Hashem stands alone. And when we find that essence inside of us, that real substance of greatness inside, 
So then we relate to this characteristic of Hashem Levado, Hashem is alone. And that is the greatness of Klai Yisrael, and that is our eternity. Because in Olam Haba, when we leave this world, that's all that we'll have. We'll only have what we've done with our essence, what we've done with ourselves. We have one, sh although we believe in reincarnation, but we try and take opportunities because it's painful for the Neshama to come back again. We want to take this chance. We've got one chance, and that's what we're going to be for eternity, is if we do the inner work, the spiritual work, and the, the greatness that we can achieve from within. So that's the levado of Klai Yisrael, that I'm Yishkon Levad, that's the, the I'm Levad of Yishkon, that's a nation that dwells alone, that's what Yidbilam saw. And that's who we are for eternity, and that's how we're supposed to be. That's the goal of every Jew, the goal that we all should try and achieve. Um, thank you so much for listening, and have a wonderful day.